Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Our guest today is Michael Reed, senior, senior editor of the Americas for The Economist and responsible for the Bayou column. Michael is the author of Forgotten Continent, The Battle for Latin America's Soul, 2007, and Brazil, The Troubled Rise of a Global Power, uh, 2014, both published by Yale University Press. He has followed the region for most of his career and now has the opportunity to follow it from a particularly relevant vantage point in Madrid, Spain. Welcome, Michael. We're delighted, delighted to have you on the show. Thanks very much for the invitation. Pleasure to be with you. Michael, let's begin with your thoughts on what you recently called the quiet death of Lava Jato. What does all of this pretend in Brazil regarding Lula, elections, Sergio Moro, judiciary, legislative relations, etc. Well, um, clearly the, the last uh, several years or so featured uh, an unprecedented um, legal uh, uh, offensive against uh, corruption in Brazil, but also elsewhere in Latin America, um, involving a new generation of um, prosecutors and judges using new tools, including plea bargaining, uh, including uh, exchange of financial information with um, other countries around the world, notably Switzerland. Um, I think uh, there were a lot of results. I mean, it revealed a um, uh, uh, organized corruption on an extraordinary scale in Brazil in particular, centered on, obviously on Odebrecht and Petrobras, but involving other uh, Brazilian construction companies and other companies, and involving uh, a layer of politicians and, and officials. Now, I think it ran into trouble for two reasons. I mean, one was, um, I mean, two kinds of politicization, if you like. Um, one was that it turned out um, uh, that Sergio Moro, the, the judge, the, the central judge in Curitiba, turned out to be less than impartial. Um, I mean, that um, was signaled when he accepted uh, the job of justice minister in, in Jair Bolsonaro's government uh, after he had um, uh, sentenced Lula. And okay, that sentence was upheld by an independent appeal court, but it did remove Lula from the race. And then there were the leaks of the uh, messages which showed collusion between him and, uh, and the prosecutors, uh, which is against the um, judicial procedures in, in Brazil. But the second way it's been undermined, um, and in a way which is even more troubling, is, um, is that you know, Bolsonaro had campaigned in 2018 as an anti-corruption campaigner, as, 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 as somebody who was opposed to a velia politica, no, the old politics. And yet in office, uh, once uh, anti-corruption investigations started touching his own family, then he has um, uh, um, essentially moved to shut them down by uh, through um, uh, 
through uh, picking an attorney general who has little interest in them, and uh, and uh, similarly uh, uh, officials in the in the federal police, and um, has made his peace with the old politics. So I think it's fair to say that the anti-corruption offensive is more or less over. I think it will, things will no, not go back entirely to uh, the status quo ante in the sense that um, those judges and prosecutors are still around um, in the sense that some of those legal instruments are still there. Uh, I think public opinion, which was very important in La Vajato, um, is at the moment obviously uh, um, more preoccupied with immediately with the pandemic, um, which is of course on a terrible scale in Brazil and elsewhere in the region, um, and also on the associated economic slump. But I don't think that um, you know Latin American publics will go back necessarily to tolerating corruption as they did in the past. But a lot there depends on the power of or the independence of the media and the independence of the judiciary. Michael, let's move on to Ecuador. Perhaps you can summarize the recent developments um, in Ecuador. Well, um, the presidential election reminds me rather of the president, presidential election in Colombia in 2018, in the sense that the final result may well be determined by who got into the second round um, in second place. And, and in the case of Colombia, Gustavo Petro um, squeaked in against Sergio Fajardo, a centrist candidate. And that meant that um, Ivan Duque won in, in, in Ecuador. At the moment, it looks like the mirror image of that in that um, uh, Andres Arauz, the placeholder for Rafael Correa, the former president, um, won fairly or, or had a big lead or fairly big lead in the first round. Had Yaku Perez, the indigenous um, environmentalist, squeaked into the second round, I think he might well have won because uh, I think you know there is a broad current of anti-Coreismo in Ecuador. But um, not only did um, Perez, it appears, not get into the second round, but uh, Guillermo Lasso, the conservative banker who did, I think will find it much harder to mobilize that broad anti-Coreista front. Um, and the really sad thing is that the, um, the kind of bad blood, that the allegations of fraud, um, uh, which haven't been substantiated, but I mean, the, the relationship between uh, Guillermo Lasso and Jaco Perez is now uh, very bad, very poor. And um, so I think it's hard to see the opposition uniting uh, uh, to Andres Arauz. Now, what does that mean for Ecuador? What does, what does a, an Arauz presidency mean? Well, I think um, Correa will be back in some form or another. I mean, bear in mind that in Correa's 10 years in power, he benefited from the biggest oil boom in Ecuador's history. He did use some of that money in positive ways, building roads, building schools, building hospitals. Um, 
but he doubled the size of the state from 20% of the economy to 40% of the economy on the back of a, an ephemeral oil boom and in a way that's totally unsustainable. Um, Ecuador adopted the dollar 20 years ago, um, therefore can't print money, can't change its exchange rate. So um, the, the in, we will have to see what happens to the oil price. He may be, they may be lucky if they win and get another oil boom. Um, such are the vagaries of history. But um, it, um, if they don't, then I think um, it's going to be tough for them. And I would worry that um, uh, that Korea would be more authoritarian uh, a second time around. Right. Michael, I know you spent time in, in Peru and you probably uh, keep up with what, what's happening there. Um, perhaps a quick uh, overview of um, the situation in Peru. Well, I think it's a very depressing and disappointing election on April the 11th. I mean, we've seen the, the kind of de degeneration of Peru's political system. And for most of the 21st century, Peru did very well economically in terms of growth. It did very well in terms of poverty reduction. It needed to complement that with stronger institutions um, and with um, stronger social provision. I mean, they did some things on education, but um, not on healthcare. And you know, Peru's paid the price of that um, in the pandemic. Um, for the last few years, the dominant political current in Peru has been anti-Fukimorismo, and that's a purely negative political current. Um, it's been in the ascendant, um, particularly with um, Martin Vizcarra. Um, uh, but Vizcarra changed the, uh, uh, the constitution in ways which I think were, ended up being negative. I mean, I think dissolving the Congress, as he did in 2019, and having changed uh, the uh, rules so that um, uh, legislators cannot be re-elected consecutively. Um, that has produced uh, an even worse Congress uh, uh, of kind of inchoate populism of both right and left with no incentive to adopt long-term policy. We now have a very fragmented political field um, in which um, the, uh, the option with the strongest political support is none of the above or blank or, or, or spoiled votes, um, but Peruvians will have to decide. I think it will be a more populist government, um, could be of the left, center left, could be of the right, could be of the hard right. Um, uh, and I think it will be a very fragmented Congress again. I think it's, I mean, this, presidential period has ended up having four different presidents occupying uh, the job. Um, I think something similar could happen. So, I mean, the sad thing for Peru is that I think to continue with rapid economic growth, it needs, it needs stronger institutions. And um, I think that the growth could, could run out. That is, that is the risk. Uh, and that would be very sad for Peruvians. Yeah, there's a new administration in Washington. How do you think things will evolve regarding Venezuela? I have to say that I, I think in the short term, I think not much will change. I mean, I think um, 
the Maduro regime has consolidated its grip on power over many years. Um, it's uh, taken control of the National Assembly in an election which, which um, neutral observers saw as fraudulent and rigged. Um, I think it's moving in a totalitarian direction and in, uh, with plans to, uh, to uh, take control of um, social media, NGOs and so forth. Um, I think it, um, you know, it has, it has survived US sanctions because it doesn't really care about the um, cost to the population as long as it retains power. Um, there is the safety valve of emigration, 5 million Venezuelans abroad, a lot of them send remittances back. Um, so um, there is a kind of equilibrium there. Um, uh, clearly, um, Cuba and Venezuela are um, tightly tied together, um, and the Biden administration's policies uh, towards them will, I think, perhaps be linked. One does, I think the only possibility for some kind of change in Venezuela, and it will take time, is a broad negotiation that would involve kind of all the stakeholders, including the US, including Cuba, including crucially the Venezuelan armed forces, including Russia. Um, and, um, you know, it's hard to see that happening in the short term, uh, to say the least. Yeah. A recent piece in uh, the Bayou column called for a new social contract. Perhaps you could summarize your argument for our listeners. Well, it's something that's out there in the region. Uh, it's being talked about a lot. And I think that's because um, um, the pandemic uh, laid bare in a very dramatic way, some of the shortcomings um, uh, that have been evident to all of us who follow Latin America for the past few years. I mean, on the one hand, uh, economic stagnation because of low productivity. On the other hand, um, uh, inequalities and fragmentation and inadequacies of social provision of various kinds, both of, um, of healthcare, obviously, uh, education, but also social protection schemes. Um, uh, I mean, the old Bismarckian welfare state contributory uh, pensions and health schemes that were erected in the region in the 18, sorry, 1930s, 40s, 50s um, have been overtaken by, um, by urbanization without sufficient industrialization to use the term which was, I think, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, perhaps, I can't remember. But, um, uh, and so you had the situation where one worker in two in Latin America is in the informal economy, and they're therefore outside those contributory protection schemes. Democratic governments in the last 20 years have moved to extend uh, non-contributory health and basic pensions to those people but it's a patchwork and it creates perverse incentives um, to remain informal in some cases. And I think, you know, clearly what you need 
is a stronger basic welfare state. It has to be one that Latin America can afford. It's not going to be Sweden overnight. Um, uh, it will involve um, uh, more, a bigger tax take in many parts of the region, not in Brazil and Argentina, for example, which are high tax countries, high tax, low growth countries, right? Uh, and so there, I think the, the diagnosis is a, is a bit different, but um, in many places, I think you do need uh, uh, to levy more uh, progressive taxes uh, in distributional terms. And I think, and you need to set up a basic taxpayer funded uh, safety net. Um, and uh, that requires, I think, uh, a dialogue. Um, and uh, the difficulty is that this need is there when political institutions, where, where you have great political polarization in the region on the one hand, and you have democratic political institutions uh, suffering considerable discredit. So it's a real challenge of democratic political leadership, I think, to get people together, uh, both within the political system and beyond the political system to agree on a basic roadmap for creating a fairer and uh, more prosperous uh, region. I think it's an issue that will occupy us for quite some time. We'll, we'll come back to this topic for sure. Indeed. Michael, drawing from your new vantage point in uh, what I hope is sunny Madrid, um, what do you see as the, Spain's major interests, um, priorities? What is the Latin America agenda for Spain um, at this moment? Well, I, I covered the first Ibero-American summit um, of Spain and Portugal and Latin America in Guadalajara in 1991. And I listened to Felipe Gonzalez give um, an inspirational um, pitch for the left in Latin America to embrace democracy full stop without adjectives, without um, conditionalities and so on. And I think that was very important at the time. And um, I think the Spanish democratic transition was extremely influential in Latin America. Um, now, I think um, things have moved on, uh, both in Latin America, but also in Spain um, since then. We had the big wave of Spanish direct investment in Latin America, particularly banks, um, Telefonica, uh, energy companies, um, and um, logistics operators. Um, a lot of them are disinvesting at the margin. Um, uh, and now you have a government in Spain, you no longer have a uniform message. Um, uh, you have um, a government with the socialists um, and Podemos, which is aligned with um, Alba, if you like, I mean, with Venezuela, with um, Evo Morales and Luis Arce in, in Bolivia, with Rafael Correa uh, in Ecuador. And, um, and that sends a very mixed message to the region. Um, and you know, in general, I think Spain clearly, there are very close cultural and people to people 
links. I mean, um, uh, but I think the Spanish political elite tends to take Latin America for granted a bit. Um, it sees it as a kind of um, nice brooch to have um, uh, in, in presenting itself to the world. Um, but it's Spain's foreign policy priorities when it comes down to it, are really Europe and North Africa. And, uh, and yes, they are players in Latin America, but you know, they're not as important players as they used to be. And, and the view from Brussels regarding the region? Well, I think, um, I mean, certainly the fact that Josep Borrell is the um, high representative for foreign policy who is um, Spanish, Catalan, um, and you know, does have an interest in, in, in Latin America. Uh, that is um, noteworthy. But um, Borrell and the EU um, are overwhelmed by other priorities, um, not just domestic ones in terms of economic recovery and dealing with Brexit, which is still not over really. Um, but also, if you look uh, at the EU's um, kind of outer borders, as it were, they are all areas of tension and, and, and problems, you know, from Russia to Turkey, to the uh, Balkans, to uh, the Mediterranean. Um, and they inevitably absorb a lot of um, uh, time and effort. Um, uh, coordinating EU foreign policy is not easy, obviously. Uh, there are differences within the EU on, for example, Russia or indeed China. Um, uh, I think the crucial st strategic initiative uh, for the EU in Latin America is the trade agreement with Mercosur, the trade and cooperation agreement with Mercosur. But there is a big difficulty. I mean, that trade agreement, that agreement took 20 years to negotiate. Um, and then it was negotiated, uh, it was uh, agreed at last. And then in came Jair Bolsonaro to power in Brazil. And Bolsonaro is contemptuous of um, climate and environmental issues. Uh, many people in Europe uh, see him as a big problem for the world, um, those policies. And those countries in the EU, which were never enthusiastic about the, the agreement with Mercosur for protectionist reasons, particularly France, you know, now have the perfect excuse not to ratify it and, uh, because of Bolsonaro's environmental policies. Um, and you know, there is an attempt to keep the thing alive, but were Bolsonaro to win another term, I think uh, it will probably die tragically because um, I think it is, uh, in world terms, I think it's very, very important for, um, uh, as a strategic initiative, linking uh, the EU and uh, South America. Yeah. Michael, as a, as a veteran editor, um, in the short term, what are stories out there that you think um, would be worthwhile for you and other vehicles to pick up on? 
and long term, what would you recommend either to promising graduate students or even senior scholars as issues that are out there that you feel um, haven't been addressed um, uh, sufficiently? Well, I think um, it's quite hard to separate the short and the long term, actually, um, in relation to that question. I mean, I think the issue is, um, is how democracy can um, survive and thrive in Latin America, um, given the discontents uh, that were there before the pandemic that manifested themselves in several ways, in, in um, uh, a powerful mood of anti-incumbency in, uh, in elections in the region and in the, uh, uh, in the election of populists of superficially opposite political colors, but many similarities in Brazil and Mexico. Um, countries which at a federal level don't really have a, much of a tradition of populism, it should be said, you know, com compared with some others. Um, and then notably in that discontent also manifested itself in, in street protests in, in Chile, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, Colombia. No? And uh, the pandemic, I think, has um, in the short term, it's produced uh, a certain level of support for governments, the kind of so-called rally around the flag effect, but that's pretty short term. And I think as soon as restrictions are lifted, I think discontent will manifest itself and possibly on an even greater scale. So the challenge is how to um, uh, uh, deal with that discontent how to restore the credibility of democratic politics in the region, which has been undermined by poor results in terms of um, uh, public services, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of growth and opportunity, uh, in terms of dealing with inequalities which go far beyond um, income, in terms of establishing the rule of law, strengthening the rule of law, and, dealing with crime, uh, and um, in terms of uh, restoring the, uh, the, uh, the cleanliness of um, democracy uh, in relation to uh, corruption. I do think um, um, campaign finance, electoral finance, political finance is a huge issue, which has not been studied very much. Um, for example. Um, I mean, I think, you know, so much academic um, focus rightly goes on the broad kind of cluster of issues around inequality um, uh, of race and gender as well as uh, class. I think, you know, there's been increased interest in religion and evangelicals. I think there needs to be more of that. It's a big change. It's, um, um, it's not that religion ever really went away in Latin America, but it, I think it's back as a, as a political factor. Uh, uh, and, um, and it's more complicated sometimes than the kind of headlines suggest. Um, 
clearly the environment is, uh, and you know, whether in fact, I mean, you know, one of the dramas of Latin America is that you need, um, you need commodities, you need um, extractive industries in order to provide tax revenues and in order to provide foreign exchange uh, in order to have economic growth. And, you know, it's the task of governments to use those tax revenues and foreign exchange uh, to diversify uh, uh, the economy away from extractive industries in the medium term. But simply banning extractive industries does not get you out of the problem. It creates a, a new problem. It creates, it will create a foreign exchange problem, which was which dogged Latin America in the 1960s. No? Um, and uh, so how to deal with that is obviously important. I think, you know, the whole area of, you know, Latin America is not growing. I mean, economically, yeah. uh, it's, um, and, okay, Chile, Peru, and Colombia, Bolivia um, were uh, at slower but reasonable rate. Um, you know, they will see whether that comes back. Um, there are uncertainties in those countries. Um, so, you know, tackling the issue of um, a kind of the a more effective capitalism in Latin America, I mean, the missing middle of, um, of firms, you know, and, uh, and to what extent public policies can help that. Um, uh, I mean, you know, there is so much that needs to change in the region, but, um, you know, those changes need to be consensual and, um, and evolutionary if they are to be effective, I think, and not to be um, regressive. Yeah? Right. Michael, we always end by asking our guests to recommend one or two of their favorite places in the region. You have um, uh, a lifelong interest and um, experience in so many places. Um, I wonder what you would recommend in terms of uh, your, one of your favorite places, be it a bookstore, a music venue, a bar, a restaurant. Um, you can pick and choose. What would you recommend? Well, it is hard to choose. I mean, um, you know, I tend to kind of um, uh, sort of, uh, well, you know, I've been grounded in Madrid for the last year, you know. Um, to my immense frustration, you know, I'm dying to get back to um, to Latin America. I found myself dreaming about Sao Paulo, for example. It's <laughs> uh, literally, uh, but uh, I mean, the places where I have lived, you know, one tends to, um, there are lots of, uh, the countries I've lived in, there's lots of places that, you know, that I like, um, and, uh, but I would, for example, I always enjoy having a ceviche in Cerro Azul, which is um, uh, 120 kilometers down the coast from Lima to the south. It's a kind of former fishing village. Um, and then going on to the Paracas Wildlife Reserve, which is extraordinary for you know migratory birds and so on, um, sea lions and um, and um, Humboldt penguins and, and such like. Um, I, I actually like Sao Paulo very much. I mean, I chose to set up the Economist Bureau in Sao Paulo 
I'm not in Rio. Several of my successors didn't thank me, but um, you know, some of them did. Uh, I miss, um, you know, Livreria Cultura, for example. You know, uh, I miss um, you know, the Maspi is actually a, a fantastic uh, art museum. I love wander. I, I try and arrange to have a free Saturday in Buenos Aires just to wander around. You know, going to um, the Ateneo bookshop. You know. Uh, seeing what's on at the, at, the, at the Fine Art Museum, the Malibu, the Museum of, uh, of Latin American Art. And in Mexico, you know, I, um, I like, I always try and hang out uh, for a few hours in Coyoacan, where I lived, you know, and um, um, it's just nice to kind of, um, it's, Coyoacan is not, um, uh, what it was in some ways, but um, but it's still you still get that atmosphere of this extraordinarily historic place, you know, with um, uh, with many kind of cultural uh, reference. You know? And um, well, there would be there would be a lot more, but you know, those are the things that come to my mind. Yeah. Fantastic, Michael. You're making all of us dream. Um, I don't think I ever heard anyone said, "Oh, I was dreaming about Sao Paulo," <laughs> but. Uh, these, these are strange times. Indeed. Anyhow, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, I think we, um, we covered the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's so much more to, um, to discuss, but we had um, a quick, wide-ranging and stimulating discussion. We will continue to follow and, um, and support the Bayou column. And uh, we look forward to having you on the show uh, again um, sometime soon. For everyone else, um, let me remind you to tune in again next week for another episode of Econopolitics. And until then, stay well, stay safe. <laughs>